Hey, welcome to the Sermon MP3 from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. This is July 10, 2022, and this Sunday we have the Reverend Bob Ratzliff coming to share God's Word with us. So may God bless you as you listen. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you that you've inspired it so that everything, even its order, is remarkable. And we just pray that as we study it this morning and hear it, that we might find application for our own hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 8. It's interesting that in our Bibles, and we know that seven in the Bible is a very important number, that in our Bibles, whenever you see seven things, it draws our attention to God's completeness or the completeness of the subject. And uh, it's interesting that the words weeping and gnashing of teeth or wailing and gnashing of teeth are found seven times, that phrase, in the Bible. We want to look at all seven. We're going to have to move fast if we're going to do so. So some of the parables you are so familiar with that all we have to do is refer to them and you'll know instantly what it's talking about. And that is certainly true of the first, first one. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus had a centurion come to him. A centurion was someone who was in the military of the Roman Empire and he had the rank of what we would say on the police force an inspector or in the army uh, perhaps uh, uh, lieutenant in that rank area. In other words, he was a commissioned officer. He was above the sergeants. He had a commission. He was a career soldier. He'd had many years in the Roman army. And he had a servant that he loved so dearly who was sick. You can become very attached even as wealthy people to other people. And this servant meant a lot to him. And so he came to Jesus about him. And he told him that his servant was sick and that would Jesus please come and heal the servant. Jesus didn't appear to want to go. He just simply said, well... We'll read it here, verse 9. The centurion, verse 8, replied, Lord, I am not not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. Even though he wanted him to come, it appeared that he sensed some reluctance there. And so he said, I know I'm not worthy. He felt unworthy in the presence of Jesus. Have any of you ever felt unworthy in the presence of Jesus? That we really don't deserve everything that he is for us. And yet he loves us so much that we do deserve it because we belong to him and he made us and he cares about us. And so even though he felt unworthy, he said to Jesus, just say the word and maybe my servant can be healed that way. Now that's faith. And Jesus recognized it for what it was. And he said, I haven't seen this kind of faith anywhere in Israel. You see, the Israelites were bound in issues 
of the law, pleasing God through the creeds, and all of the things that their religion had developed into that had gone way beyond the laws of the Pentateuch. And so he says this, Jesus. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I say, tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Many will come from the east and the west and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We have had a series of messages this past while with our pastor about the kingdom. And the kingdom of heaven, as, we, as he emphasized, we need to stick to the topic. And this is a, one of those kingdom parables, and so will be a lot of the parables that are attached to the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Bible, weeping and gnashing of teeth represents two very important things. Well, several things, but two that we can relate to. Weeping comes from regret, sorrow, and self-pity. Think about the times when you weep. You weep because you regret what you've done, perhaps. Or sorrow. We weep when we lose a loved one and experience great sorrow. Or sometimes just pure self-pity. We feel sorry for ourselves. And so we just have a little cry. Gnashing of teeth comes from pure anger and rage. Pure anger and rage. They say that when John, uh, King John of England signed the Magna Carta in 1215 A.D., June the 15th, 1215 A.D., which changed England's monarchy and began democracy as, we, as it developed in England, which we so appreciate till this day, and took away the privilege and the power and the veto power of the English crown, and the royalty. When he signed it, it is recorded that he gnashed his teeth. He was so angry at giving up the privilege and power of the throne of England to the people. Well, if it is possible for a human being to become that angry that they actually gnash their teeth, if I were to do that, I'd probably have to go to the dentist afterwards. But uh, here we read that in the Bible, people will be weeping and gnashing their teeth because of a lack of faith, because they rejected faith. While the sons, verse 12, of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That term, outer darkness, that you see there is found three other times in the book of Matthew, two other times in the book of Matthew. Chapter 22 and verse 13, and again in chapter 25 and verse 20, and they are both connected with the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and we'll get to them. Outer darkness thrown in, which will cause weeping and gnashing of teeth as they regret certain things. When I was a pastor in, on Vancouver Island for 12 years in Duncan, we, our youth group had uh, decided to take a trip into some of the caves on the island. 
Uh, the caves on Vancouver Island aren't spectacular, but there's something else to go into. Scare the daylights out of you. You'll go through some tunnels that you're sure you're never going to pinch your way out of again. You get stuck even, and people have to push you and other things. And uh, I, they decided that I, as the pastor, needed to go on that trip, you know, with them. And we took along our lights and all this, and then we were down in some hole. And, you know, you have all kinds of interesting thoughts at those times, like this would be a great time for the Lord to send an earthquake to Grand Vancouver Island, right? <laughs> you know, would we ever get out of here? <laughs> anyway, we're down in this, some big room down there, and uh, we have a youth speaker along with us, and he asked everybody to turn their light off. And then he spoke to our group about the darkness of hell. It was effective. It was so dark that it didn't matter where you put your finger, you could not see it. In front of your eyes, it was so dark. Oh, the regret of not coming to the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And our faith must be in him. You know, faith isn't done in a vacuum. Faith and trust in Christ are linked very, very well to the concept of authority and giving it up. This man said, I'm a man under authority, even as I am a man in authority. And I give up to your authority, Lord Jesus. When you became a Christian, you said this to Jesus. I can't deal with this. I can't deal with my sin. I can't deal with myself. Whatever he spoke to you about. And you gave it to him. And you came under his authority. We are no longer as Christians under our own authority. We have returned to him and given him full authority. That's why we are now in the Garden of Eden again, like it was before sin. You just didn't realize that, did you? Yeah. You see, Adam and Eve challenged God's authority. Satan had them do it. Satan really challenged it, as he continues to do. He wants us to challenge the authority of Christ. You are not a Christian if you have not given up your, your authority to Christ. He's in charge. You're not in charge. I thought I was in charge for a while. And I wanted to have my career. And the Lord allowed me to start that career, or at least I did it. And he pursued me until finally... I gave in one night in church with my wife to his authority and I gave up my career for what he wanted us to do. If he's in authority, then we do what he asks us to do. We don't challenge him. If we do, we pay a price. He is our authority. And so faith is the beginning of salvation. Come to him in faith, trusting him to do better with your life and know more about how to handle your life than you do yourself. That is faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The substance of things hoped for. In other words, all your hopes and dreams and everything that's in your future 
belongs to him, and you trust him with it. Secondly, chapter 13 of Matthew. Chapter 13 and verse 42. Here we have the parable of the weeds. Then he left the crowds, in verse 36, and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is to the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is close to of the age, at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. These are the weeds, are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather one of his kingdom, all to his kingdom, all causes of sin, and all lawbreakers. All this gathering will take place. And then he says, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This phrase, he who has ears, let him hear, also accompanies a couple of these parables about weeping and gnashing of teeth. In every church, there are weeds. It's not our business to harvest them. Because if we make a mistake, we can do a lot of damage. Now, I dare say that if you're honest, and I'm honest, there are people in our congregations, that I, at least the ones I've pastored, who I thought, I'm not so sure they're saved. I'm sure sometimes some of them have even thought I wasn't saved. I remember when I was in Bible college, some of, the married, uh, some of the students who believed it was a good idea to get up and pray at 5 o'clock in the morning, I never did. Being a married student, my idea of, uh, was to pray later in the day. You know. But they believed it was a righteous thing to do to pray at 5 o'clock in the morning. And anybody who wasn't doing that was kind of the second-class spiritual person. You've got to go to Bible school to understand how this, these dynamics work with students. And, uh, of course, I would be challenged and I would always make some goofy, smart remark, you know, that really sounded off the wall or really wasn't appropriate sometimes. So one of the students came to see my wife and wondered if I knew the Lord because I wasn't going to 5 o'clock a.m. prayer meeting and I was answering very flippantly. Folks, there's got to be more to it than that. Unfortunately, that same student and a couple others who got up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go to prayer meeting aren't following the Lord today. Not at all. They're strayed, as we would say, from the faith. It's not our job, however, to weed God's garden. Thank God for that. I don't like weeding anyway. And probably you don't either. And so we are to leave that for God to do with his angels. And it says when he does that, these lawbreakers and sinners 
that they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be regrets. There will be regrets. As a pastor, I've done many funerals, and I've gotten to know the funeral directors very well. You travel with them in the car to the gravesides. You travel with them in the car to the cemeteries. You help them before the service. They come and help you. They sometimes sit in the back. I've had a number of undertakers listen to my sermons faithfully at the back. So you know you've got their attention if they're going to come in and listen because these fellows listen to funeral sermons over and over again. They could, they've got it all memorized. They could do it for you. They've heard the same passages over and over and over again. And some of them are out-and-out unbelievers. I wonder if they'll have regrets. Yes, they will. One that I got to know so well, and we talked so many times in the car about things of faith. He'd even help stack chairs afterwards and do things like that. He died of cancer before I left Yorkton, and he's gone. And he was always friendly, always kind, always good, but he did not know the Lord. He'll have regrets. He didn't go to church, though. How much greater will be your regrets if you went to church all your life and you fooled others, but you didn't fool God? Notice there are other parables here. There's the parable of the hidden treasure in verse 44. God so loved the world that he sent his son to, a, and they bought a field because there was treasure in the field and he knew the only way to get the treasure out of the field was to own it and so he came and he paid the price. There's the parable of the pearl of great value. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and brought it. Jesus Christ would have given his life just for one pearl, and that's you, and that's me. You are that valuable to him. Every human being on this earth is valuable to Jesus. Not one is more valuable than another. He's bought the field in order to find you. And at the end of time, there will be a great net drawing, a fishing net. And the fish that are undesirable will be thrown back into the sea. And they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 50 tells us. I trust as a Christian that you understand your value to Christ. He gave everything for you. Absolutely all of it. He paid the price. And that ought to make us so grateful. I remember one of our elders right here at the church praying one day and I heard him say, Lord, thank you for choosing me. We might not understand it, but we're thankful. We are thankful. Let's move on to our next place, Matthew chapter uh, 22. Six of these cases are all found in Matthew, and the last one is in Luke. But Matthew chapter 22 says this. 
It's the parable of the wedding feast. Now, for those of you who like to do study at home, I'm going to give you something to study on your own, okay? We all know that Matthew chapter 24 is an end-of-times passage. It's all about the end of time, right? And so that's pretty, uh, we're pretty aware of that. And of course, in Matthew chapter 24, a lot of things around it also refer to events that have to do with the end of time, but also with salvation. And so there is a parable of a wedding feast in chapter 22, just before we get to Matthew 24, a couple chapters. And this is the parable of somebody who came without wedding clothes. I was looking at my, uh, the pictures of our wedding. And, you know, on our, in our home, there's that one when I married this lovely lady. And uh, I was just saying to her, you know, that was a really, I really like that dress. That, that's such a nice dress. It just occurred to me this morning, you know, after 59 years. That, that was, no, it, it occurred to me before, too. It was such a nice dress. And somebody is coming to this wedding because in the Middle East, weddings are a big deal. They last seven days, kind of like Ukrainian weddings. You ever been to any Ukrainian weddings? They last a while. And in the biblical days, they lasted seven days. And during that time, there was great feasting and all of that. But you needed to come with the right clothes to the wedding. We're not told what those right clothes were. But somebody snuck in without the right clothes. And we read in verse 11, But when the king came in to look at the guests, chapter 22, verse 11, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless, this person. He didn't know that a wedding garment was required, apparently. He just heard about the party and thought, I'll join the party. I wonder how many people attend church because they hear some good stuff's going on there. One day I was involved with the Billy Graham crusade, been involved with three of them in my lifetime. And this one was in Vancouver. And uh, as we walked from the stadium where it was being held to the hotel where we were staying, we were going up the elevator and were talking with some prostitutes who frequented that part of town. And they said, yeah, we've heard that's quite a party going on over there. That's how they understood it. It was a party. Many people will latch on to even church events and activities and things, not because they know Christ, but because there's a party going on there. That's not a good enough reason. And so the clothes need to be worn. You need to belong to Jesus. You need to have had an invitation. And you need to have his wardrobe. This was uh, not by those who had not changed clothes. Some will have right clothes, but they will be singed, the Bible tells us. You may be wearing the right clothes for the wedding. 
You may be on your way to heaven, but the Bible tells us that some of those clothes are singed, singed with sin, because we've had one foot there and one foot there, and we've been burned a few times by sin in spite of the fact that we have the right clothes. Jude chapter 23 says, Snatch others from the fire and save them to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. While we may love one another as believers and we might have the right clothes, there are some things amongst us that stink. The clothes have been singed. And they don't do any of us any good. They bring shame upon us. Revelation talks about a lot about those who are clothed in white garments. How's your garments? We just came back from Europe, having been there a month. And the airlines can do things to you nowadays, as you've all heard. So, of course, my wife's bag, when she got to Seattle two days ahead of me, got somehow tangled up in the gears of one of their equipment. And we're still working on that one, my son in Seattle is. And her, all her white clothes, when the suitcase was utterly smashed to pieces. I've never seen a suitcase as chewed up as that one was. It was her carry-on, too, but we happened to ship it. And uh, when we opened it, her white blouse had grease and oil all over it. And her white slacks had grease and oil all over them, and they were both torn. This morning, she was going to wear a skirt, and she remembered that it's probably back in that suitcase, and it probably has grease and oil all over it, and it's torn. And it's still in Seattle because we need the evidence over there to prove to two different airlines whose fault it is. Because they're trying to figure that one out, right? The clothes have been wrecked. Well, you know, we need to have white garments. Pure. Clean. And we need to walk in the faith and walk in Christ and enjoy and relish Righteousness. Righteousness is important. The clothes of righteousness are ours to wear. We have the right and the privilege of doing right. We've been freed from sin so that we can do the right and make positive choices for Christ. Chapter 24. I mentioned chapter 24 already, that end time chapter. And uh, as you go through this chapter, you will come towards the end of it, and uh, <clears throat> you will find that in this chapter there is a change. And so again, for your personal study, you will notice that in the chapter uh, we find the bridegroom, we find the bride and, and being ready, and then you'll notice in verse chapter uh, 24 and verse 36, if you follow it down, you will find that the terms beginning at verse 45, the term master is used over and over again. The word master. Jesus Christ is the master. It goes right through to verse 51. And here we find that verse that says, and we'll cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping 
and gnashing of teeth. There will be regret, anger, sorrow, and all of those things that are expressed through the gnashing of teeth. Who? That will be the person who does not do what his master asks of him, who is not faithful in the work of the Lord. And then it goes on, and it talks in another parable in chapter 25 about the bridegroom, and that's us. We're the bridegroom. And we need to be ready for the wedding, right? All of this is, you know, Jesus taught a lot about eschatology in terms of their understanding of how marriage worked, which is different than our Western way, by the way. And so the master and the bridegroom are mentioned, but as you move on further, you get to the parable of the talents, and here we have the master again. So if you follow the order in chapter 25, there's a parable about the bridegroom, the next parable is about the master, and then you, if you move to the end of the chapter, beginning at verse 31, and if you go 34 and to 40, you will find the king. So there's an order going on here, from the bridegroom, to the master, to the king. We're going to be a part of his kingdom. We're going to serve our king. But right now, we're just the bridegroom. But the bridegroom has responsibilities to his master. And that moves us forward. To do otherwise is to be a hypocrite. A hypocrite. I know a man, passed away now, who began to doubt his salvation and question the deity of Christ, hell, heaven, all things biblical, in his middle age, he'd been a missionary. And little by little, he began to talk to me and others privately about his unbelief and his denial of the faith. And as that grew in him, it became anger, and he began to write things that were, you know, against the faith. But he would still sing beautifully the hymns of the, of the church and the hymns of, of the Lord in our hymn books. He had a marvelous voice and was a great singer. Even went to conferences, music conferences, and went to a Billy Graham conference to learn how evan to do evangelism and different things. Great speaker. But by what he told me, I knew he was an unbeliever. He didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He didn't believe in the divine nature of Christ. He didn't believe any of the things that we believe anymore. Yes, a Bible school graduate as well. So I challenged him. I said, you're a hypocrite. It's time you come clean with the Christian public. You stand up there and you sing and you do this and this. You come clean. And he did. He wrote two books where he came clean. And he died in his unbelief. Yes, hypocrisy will send you to hell. You are a child of hell. And hypocrisy from people who claim to be Christians 
is worthy of hell. Whom do you serve and who do you hide the truth from? One day, a young lady in our church, high school, she came to see me. She wanted to get married to a fellow from Lake Cowichan who was not a believer. And uh, she said to me, I said, well, you, you, I don't, you know I don't do weddings for Christians and non-Christians. Don't marry them. So I need to talk to him about this and talk to you a little more. Oh, she said, I'm not a Christian. She's in our youth group all the way through, right through to grade 12. She's in grade 12. She's in my office, wants me to do her wedding. I said, I'm not a Christian. I said, you're not? No, she said, I'm not. I said, you don't want to be? No, don't want to be. I said, does your mother know this? No. Her father wasn't a Christian either, so, but her mother was. I said, your mother doesn't know this? She thinks you're a Christian? Yeah. I said, you've been lying all these years? Yeah. I said, you don't give any trouble at home, and you're great in the church. You, yeah, I know. Yeah, but I'm done with it as soon as I graduate, she said. And I'm out of the house. I said, tell you what. I'll do your wedding on one condition. Because I don't mind marrying two non-Christians. I said, I'll do your wedding on one condition. That you go home and tell your mother you are not a Christian, you don't want to be a Christian, period. Tell her the truth. So that your mother doesn't get the idea that I'm a compromising pastor. And she did. We remain good friends till this day. Whenever we've met since... On Vancouver Island, she's always friendly to me and all the rest. Well, at least she did the right thing, didn't she? She came clean. Let's move on a little further. 25 verse 30, that we need to live uh, a life that is true to God. And notice what it says in verse 30. That the cast the, the worthless servant into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What kind of servant was this? This is the one who didn't use what God had given him for anything. I have someone in our family who has bragged to me now for over 30 years that he has not been in church. Not my family, but extended beyond our family. Relative. Oh, he used to teach Sunday school in a big alliance church on the West Coast. There were 600 people in his Sunday school class at one time. And then he walked away. His garments were singed. And he took great pride in blaming others for his problems. And today, he has real difficulties. He's in all kinds of difficulties, but he still brags that he has not been to church for over 30 years. I wonder how much giving he's done. I wonder what's happened to his talents. I wonder what he's returning to Christ. Well, I know what he's not returning anything. Folks, 
If our life belongs to Christ, all we are and have belongs to him. And the least we can do is at least tithe. How sad. Luke 13, the seventh one. And this is the only one that is not in Matthew. And these are the only ones in the Bible. So the last one is important. Even though Matthew didn't record it, Luke did. And we thank him for doing it because Jesus' words here are very important. Luke 13, and this will be our concluding one. The narrow door. Verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Maybe you should underline that with verse 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? How many of you on some days figure there's a lot more unsaved people than you thought there might be the week before? Uh, we go through this, don't we? You know, sometimes I figure, well, they, these people must all be Christians. I mean, <laughs> they got to be. I mean, God is compassionate, and they all go to church, and I know they got some fuzzy theology and some funny things going on, but, you know, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, God is good. There's more Christians than I think there are. Got to be. Anybody thought that way? Yeah. Okay, good. And then there's other days when I think, you know, there's a lot less Christians than I think there are. You know, I've, I've been, yeah, there, there's got to be, there, you know, this is not Christianity. I mean, what's going on here? And there's got, you know, we, we struggle with this. And so did the disciples. They said to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? They were quite convinced there wasn't going to be very many from what they were observing. And Jesus said to them, when the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer, I do not know you, where you come from. Verse 26, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. Jesus did say that narrow is the road that leads to life and few there be that find it. Never let that discourage you. Jesus in his parable of the sower and the seed said that one out of four, only one out of four would be would be good seed that would grow and mature. We often become discouraged in witnessing because so often we get nowhere. Or just when we think we've gotten somewhere and we've brought someone to Christ, they go away. They stray away. And so we give up. I've done that. One day I was driving back to church after trying to lead someone to Christ that I'd been working with for a long time and I thought he was saved and I tried to pick him up for church for three weeks straight in a row and I'd Drove back to the church and after his excuses and all the rest of it, and I said, Lord, 
I've had enough. None of you would ever say that, would you? You win your own souls, I said to the Lord. And then I went into my church and preached a sermon to everybody. It wasn't about that, but I was discouraged. Have you ever been discouraged? And just said, I've, I'm done with this. I've witnessed and I've talked about, and nobody's getting saved. Well, maybe you could refine your ways a little bit, but we all can work on that. But yeah, it's discouraging. Lord, are many or is it just a few? Jesus at the very end is standing at the church of Laodicea and he is saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is locked out of his own church. Can't get in. The people have rejected the message of salvation. And he's knocking on the door trying to get in. So if even one person in that church opens his heart's door, Jesus will come in and eat with him and he with, with Jesus. We're living in discouraging times in North America. I'm the first to admit it. It's not easy anymore. People don't care anymore. They've turned religion off. They don't want to go to church. They don't care what you say. You can't talk about it in your workplace. Used to be you could witness on an airplane. I led a man to, uh, to the Lord on an airplane years ago. Why? Because they didn't have movies on all the back of the seats to, for everybody to watch and be distracted by. Nobody talks to anybody on an airplane anymore. In fact, the airlines don't want you to talk to each other. They just want you to sit there and look at their dumb movies. You know, folks, it's discouraging. Are only a few going to be saved? Yes, only a few. And compared to the world's population, that is so. But that doesn't mean we stop trying or give up. When I was in Bible college, I heard this story. A missionary to Japan, where my youngest son and daughter-in-law live. He's lived there for 33 years. And we've been to Japan four times to visit them. And to see the idolatry in Japan is very disturbing. To see the shrines that are dedicated to the aborted babies. The Japanese have a horrible record on that. With all the little teddy bears and different things that they put there at the shrine to remember the baby that they aborted. To see all the idolatry. The bottles of sake on top of different shrines. And to see this modern generation starting to even not bother taking care of the shrines. They don't even care about any kind of religion anymore. And this missionary to Japan looked at the masses of people And he concluded something very tragic. But you can't, in some ways, you can feel for him. One day a missionary in Japan said to me as he said, Bob, do not get on the train at Shinjuku Station in Tokyo during rush hour. You're too tall. The crowd will get under you and they will carry you where you do not wish to go. 
I tell you, Sinjuku Station, six decks underground, six floors. Mobs of people trying to get on that train, those trains, those subways. He said, they will literally get under you, those short Japanese people, and they will lift you off your feet, and you will be <laughs> taken places. Yes, these are huge crowds, folks. Greater Tokyo has 39 million people. That's one million more than Canada has. Just one city. And this missionary looked at all these people, and he concluded, surely, a loving God would not let all these people go to hell. And because of that conclusion, he returned to North America and gave up his missionary life and work. And the mission very kindly removed him from their missionary force. That has stuck with me. How many people are lost? And so I'm thankful that he chose me. And I'm thankful that through faith, which is a gift from God, and when it comes, it needs to be exercised, that I followed through on it and I trusted in him. And now, we need to tell others. Don't give up. Let's not quit. Even though the discouragements are often very real. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be a place of anger and rage, regret, sorrow, and self-pity for all eternity. If you're not a Christian here this morning, take that gift of faith and trust in Christ and give him your all. Let him be the master of your life and you will meet him as king. Amen.